A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Greetings, fellow time travelers. It's always good to have you with me for another part of the journey. <laughs> through the love letter to the world considering the, the comings and goings of this little blue ball upon which we live out our lives to help support this podcast series and to get extra content more goodies please sign up to my Neil Oliver site on patreon.com uh, it's the financial support that comes in from there uh, that facilitates what Paul and I try to do with the podcast so I'll hope to see you there now it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off together on the next step in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. The Earth is the centre of the universe, or so it was thought. A solar eclipse inspires a young mind and change is coming. Two great minds meet their observations, their recordings of data and testing of new ideas lead to great strides in human understanding and an ancient assumption is appended. Hi Neil, this series began about 4,300 years ago in Mesopotamia and each week we travel closer in time to the present day. Last week we landed in the 1600s and we travelled with you from Queen Elizabeth's England to the Indian subcontinent. Where are we this week? Hi Paul. Uh, well, we're still in the 1600s this week, um, but we're swapping international geopolitics for science. We're travelling around Europe, Northern Europe, with a rather brusque, competitive and secretive scientist as he starts collecting data and unravelling the truth of our place in the universe. We're in Prague in 1601 when Tycho Brahe dies and his collaborator Johannes Kepler takes up the baton and proves that we and Earth are not the centre of the universe. I find this one especially fascinating for all sorts of reasons because it's to do with understanding the movement of the lights in the sky. Coming to terms with who's moving and who's standing still. You know, who's going round who? And I, I think about, I mean, that was a question that, that bothered, troubled, clever minds. From the beginning, whatever population was on the planet, a, a, a little percentage were looking up and paying attention to the way that things were moving in the night sky and becoming aware of patterns. The same light appearing in the same place 
or, or seeming to follow a, a, a path. And I find that extraordinary because I know I'm, I just wouldn't have noticed. Without being told, I just look up at the lights in the sky and think, oh, pretty. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, I just don't think I've got that facility in my head to notice or to really to question what's going on up there. But fortunately, in the scheme of things, there have always been people who have looked up at the sun and the moon and the stars and everything else that's up there and tried to work out what's going on. And that's where we are with this particular moment in the love letter to the world. It involves two characters of equal importance in the story, but one whose name will be familiar and I think one whose name much less so unless you've had a, a particular interest in this subject. So the the name that might be familiar is Johannes Kepler. People looking back to their school days and physics and maths will probably have a bell rung that's attached to laws of motion and Kepler. The other name that's probably unfamiliar is Tycho Brahe. That's one of those names, this happens to me a lot. I'm fascinated by how names might sound. And Tycho Brahe, which is the way I say it in my head, is a name I like saying, Tycho Brahe, because <laughs> I'm a simple soul. But as I say, those are the two men involved in this particular moment in, in history. And as I say, there have always been mathematically minded people looking up. Ptolemy, there's another name that many people will just know they've heard before. He was around in the second century AD. You know, he was probably born somewhere around 100, something like that. And he operated out of Alexandria, Egypt. And he had come up with the, the notion, or he hadn't come up with it, he had accepted as fact the notion that the Earth, our planet, our home, was central in creation, central in the cosmos, central in the universe, a fixed point. It wasn't moving. We were static somehow, and everything else was moving in relation to us. Now, after all, that's how the Bible pretty much made it clear that God had created everything and had put the earth at the centre of it. In Psalm 104, God says that he laid the foundation of the earth that it should not be removed forever. That it should not be removed forever. There it is and there it shall stay. And now, obviously I've name-checked Ptolemy because he was one of those who, who went to great lengths to explain what he could see. But he wasn't the first. Aristotle, one of that great trio of Greek philosophers, mathematicians, which is to say Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, he was in the 4th century BC, so 500 years and more before Ptolemy. Aristotle had said the same. The earth is fixed. The earth is in the middle. And, and, and everything else is, is finding a way to move in relation to it. So there you go. That was, the, that, that was the situation for thousands of years. That the cleverest minds were bent in that direction. The planets and everything else really were moving around us on pretty much circular orbits. So we're there and everything else is finding circular orbits around us. But the problem was that although that made sense and it satisfied, it's especially people who followed the, the Bible, the children of the book, 
were satisfied by that idea because there was this internalised notion that God had put this place and us at the centre of creation. So everything else had to be made to fit that, even though the most acute observations suggested that it's hard to see that that was actually what was happening. It must be happening. And so we'll come up with schemes incredibly complicated to explain that that is the case. But probably Aristotle and Ptolemy and the rest of them, they knew that they were struggling against what they were actually seeing. Now, the, the reason that Ptolemy, I name-checked him first in this context, he came up with a system. And the system that he managed to construct was so complete, so complex and persuasive in a way that no one else had hitherto managed. He made what was seen comply with what was believed. He got further than anybody else to getting over the bumps and the wrinkles in the fabric that suggested that we know it must be the case, but it's not really what we're seeing. Well, he came up with a system that best made what was seen, what was visible, comply with what was believed, the centrality of, of our home planet. What he did, which is brilliant, there's no other way to describe it. If you picture, you know, like a Russian doll, the nest of dolls, big one, take the lid off, slightly smaller, and so on, down to a tiny little one. And if you combine that with the image of, you know, those plastic hamster balls? I was never allowed a hamster because my mum was afraid of mice and it looked too much like a mouse. I wasn't allowed anything like that in the house. But some of my friends, you know, had the hamsters that could run about in those clear plastic spheres. Well, what Ptolemy imagined was that the earth was like the tiny ball at the centre and it was enclosed within a nest of ever bigger transparent spheres right bigger 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 you're all the way out okay and the spheres fitted inside one another with gaps so there was spaces in between and the, the sun and the moon and the planets were moving in those spaces within the spheres but the shape, the spherical nature of the spheres demanded circular orbits of everything. The sun, the moon, everything else around it. And it, obviously it's a, lot more, it's a lot more complicated than that. The Ptolemaic system is unbelievably complex and Byzantine. But it's so thoroughly worked out that it did the job to such an extent that people like navigators, people like Christopher Columbus, could exploit, could use the Ptolemaic system and, well, find their way across the open ocean. This is the kind of almost paradoxical wonder of the Ptolemaic system. It was wrong <laughs> in layman's terms, but it still worked. It still made enough sense that people who needed it could use it and get to where they needed to go. Because people were, were looking up at the sky to, for navigational purposes. Yeah, the Ptolemaic system explained why such and such a, a light in the sky was where it was at a given time. It explained it. It was just wrong. It was scientifically <laughs> inaccurate. And there you go, science, scientifically, that's key. Because in the middle of the second millennium, science, as we understand it, rears its head. One of the names that's 
first associated with what we understand as the scientific method is Francis Bacon. He was Attorney General for England. He was the Lord Chancellor of England. And he's often named as the father of the modern scientific method. And basically what he did, and others that followed in his train did likewise, he insisted that the world was to be understood by looking at it, come up with an idea that seems to explain what's going on, and then compose experiments that challenge it. Right, so you say, I think I know what's going on. But then you test your theory by coming up with experiments that may or may not prove you're right. And if your experiment proves you're right, okay, then you, you, keep, you can maintain your idea as probably possibly correct. But if you come up with an experiment that doesn't go the right way, then you have to be open to the, ah, now my, there's something wrong with my theory. And that's, that's that process by which the scientific method is a constant ongoing conversation. You know, there's never consensus, it's never finished. It's a story without an end. Francis Bacon is regarded as a father of the scientific method because he was insisting on this. Look at it, first of all. Come up with a theory, challenge your own theory. However, when it came to the movement of the planets and a better understanding of them than Ptolemy's, a significant step there was taken not by a scientist but by a churchman, a man of God called Nicolaus Copernicus. There's another name that registers for, for a lot of people. And, in 1543, he published a work called On the Revolutions of the Celestial Orbs. Orbs is a word that always makes me smile. On the Revolutions of the Celestial Orbs. This is before Bacon. And Copernicus was no scientist. Basically, he just had a hunch. He looked up at the sky and just had a hunch that it was the sun that was at the centre and not the earth. That just seemed to, to make sense to him. He didn't do any experiments, he didn't do anything to test it, it just seemed to him to make sense. That's the heliocentric model of the cosmos. And because of what he was, which is a man of the church, this was a slap in the face for the church, for Christianity, and all the religions of the, of the book, because it was challenging the idea that Earth was at the centre. Once you open that door, once you contemplate the possibility that Earth is not at the centre of creation, then you have opened a can of worms. So, courtesy of Copernicus and his hunch, there was a, a challenge to the Ptolemaic model. Now, you've got Francis Bacon, he's the father of the scientific model, but there are others out there during the 16th century who are starting to contemplate different explanations for what's going on. And one of them was a Danish nobleman and astronomer called Tycho Brahe. Flamboyant, colourful character, to say the least. He was, you know, born into money and born into privilege. If his parents had had their way, he would have gone on to be a theologist, a churchman, a lawyer. But when he was about 13 years old, in 1560, he saw a solar eclipse. So he saw the moon pass between the earth and the sun and block it out. And his mind was blown. And from that moment, he was hooked. His response to that was that he, he felt there was a need for detailed observation and record keeping. He was that kind of fastidious, data-oriented person that also bleeds into and lends itself to the scientific method. 1560s, 13 years old, but 12 years later, 1572, he observed, with the naked eye, 
the appearance of a supernova in the constellation Cassiopeia. A supernova is the emergence of a new star. It's like someone throws a switch and another light comes on in infinity. It's a big deal. That he spotted it and reported on it made him famous. This made his name. And he was able to compare what he saw with an English astronomer called Thomas Diggs. And they they compared notes. And between them, they realised that there was no parallax an absence of parallax. Now, if you hold your finger in front of your face and close one eye and then close the other, your finger seems to move back and forth as a consequence of the slightly different position of your eye in relation to where the end of your finger is. If your finger's a very, very long way away (laughs) and you do that, it doesn't move because with the increasing distance, the left to right illusion is too small to notice. So, in short, the fact that between them Diggs and Brahe could find no suggestion of parallax, and one eye was in Denmark and one eye was in England. And what that basically meant was that the supernova was a hell of a long way away. Maybe in the comments somebody will come on and butcher my interpretation of parallax, but but there you go. In 1573, so the following year, Brahe published De Nova Stella, the new star. And with that information, he was able to say that Aristotle and Ptolemy must have been wrong about the whole nature of the universe. Now, there's no need to go into the why and the wherefore, you know, exactly why he was able to draw the conclusions that he did. The Ptolemaic and Aristotelian understanding of the cosmos has to be wrong. The distances, the scale of the thing is much greater than this idea about invisible spheres fitting inside one another, determining the motion of everything. Off the back of it, Brahe attracted the attention and the patronage of King Frederick II of Denmark. Well, King Frederick II of Denmark and Norway, actually, the combined thrones. And with that patronage, with that financial support, he built two different observatories on a Danish island, Hven, and he, he set about the business of, of doing all the complicated observation that he wanted to do. Now, as I say, there was no, he wasn't using a telescope. Telescopes weren't generally available. They weren't in the shops, so to speak, until the 17th century, after Brahe's work was done. What he used was a thing called a mural quadrant, which is to say, you know, like a a set square built into a wall, hence mural, that sits on a meridian. So it sits on one of the imaginary lines that run from the North Pole to the South Pole. And this thing is built in. It means you've got a fixed point for making your observations. And working out, I don't even get into it. But he set himself the task of of observing. And during the next 20 years, he watched the way in which the planets moved in relation to the positions of fixed stars. Which is to say, stars that are so far away that we don't get a sense of movement from them. And the database that he built up was unlike anything that anyone had ever attempted before. He also logged and calculated accurately the positions of 777 stars that no one had hitherto bothered to pay attention to. And in the end, he came up with a system that replaced Ptolemy, but also, also seemed to supersede the idea that Nicolaus Copernicus had come up with. Now bear in mind that Copernicus had put the sun at the centre of the solar system, which is right. Brahe's observations persuaded him that Copernicus was wrong. 
So Brahe was wrong. <laughs> However, he came up with a, he came up with another complex system, and essentially, he imagined that all the planets except Earth orbited the Sun, but that the Sun, with all the planets going round it, orbited the Earth. So, a whole new level of complexity, and also wrong. And if that was where the story ended, it would have been a failure. You know, Brahe would simply have been consigned to the dustbin of history as somebody else that got it wrong. But, but, the point is, if I may make a use of a, a metaphor or an analogy, his orbit entered the orbit of Johannes Kepler, or maybe the other way around. Now, where Brahe was rich and flamboyant and charismatic, he wore a metal nose, actually, to cover wounds from a sword fight in his younger years. Presumably, he was disfigured to the point where he didn't want to be seen without his... Some people said it was gold, some people said it was brass, but anyway, he, had a, he, wore, a, he wore a metal nose, so, you know, you'd notice him if he passed you in the street. He was also secretive, which was crucial. He didn't let anyone see his data. All the... All the notebooks that he'd been putting, compiling for 20 years were under lock and key, wouldn't let anybody anywhere near it, which is hardly conducive to you know, a collegiate approach to understanding the universe. Johannes Kepler was a poor boy. He was the son of a, a fairly mercurial mercenary soldier and an eccentric mother. So let's imagine he was gifted an unconventional mind, and it was his unconventional mind that, you know, that maybe enabled him to make all the difference. Tycho Brahe was, a, was proud, Kepler was self-deprecating and shy, so they were very different characters. But in 1596, Johannes Kepler had won fame in his own right by publishing a book called Mysterium Cosmographicum. Get your laughing gear around that. A fantastical but well-worked-out theory of celestial movements. You know, so he was, he was having his own go at explaining everything that was going on. And it had come into Tycho Brahe's hands... And he, he was impressed by what Kepler was saying. And he, he made that for him the unprecedented step of inviting Kepler to come and join him. Kepler was 25 years the younger man, but he invited him to come and join him at his observatory. By this time, as a side note, King Frederick had died and Brahe had fallen out with the new king, King Christian. And he had gone so far as to leave Denmark and he had courted and one favour from Rudolf II, the Holy Roman Emperor, and he was now operating out of Prague, like I say, what we would know as the Czech Republic. And so it was there, it was in Prague that, that Kepler joined them. But, as might have been foreseen, they fell out pretty quickly. Two very different characters, two very different personalities. Kepler left them <laughs> they kind of, you know, the, the lovebirds fell out, you might say, and Kepler, you know, went away. But Brahe persuaded him to come back because almost certainly Brahe realised that together they were maybe capable of more than the sum of the parts. Brahe saw something in Kepler and probably Kepler saw something in Brahe that although they were very different characters, they needed each other. It's extraordinary that he did it later in life. Instead of becoming an old, you know, an old grumpy old man... He, yeah. he said, I'm going to keep going and I'm going to do it with a younger guy. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, let's imagine he was still pretty sure of himself. But with Kepler, he, he recognised another intellect. M maybe somebody that, you know, that you, don't, you don't maybe 
If you're someone like Brahe, you maybe don't come across too many people of whatever personality who seem to have the same innate intelligence. And so he was, he was attracted to him, or they were attracted to each other for that reason. Now, here's the significant thing. If you like the moment, the telling moment in the story of the world, Tycho Brahe died prematurely and unexpectedly on the 24th of October 1601. Just dropped dead. Officially, as, as befits a fairly uh, eccentric, bizarre character, his death was similarly, you know, it was an odd one. He died of a burst bladder, officially died of a burst bladder, which it was explained that he had attended a royal gala, you know, so a big do in a palace somewhere, and that he needed to go for a call of nature, had been too embarrassed to do so, um, didn't excuse himself, stayed at the table and his bladder burst. Now, it sounds, well, let's imagine that's not what happened, but that is the official explanation for his death. People speculated afterwards that he'd been murdered they were big on poisoning. That was always a popular way to get rid of someone and it was surmised that perhaps he'd been given mercury in his food or in his drink. The finger of guilt it was pointed... Well, some people said it was Christian, the king, because Brahe had allegedly been having an affair with the king's mother <laughs> and that King Christian had taken exception to this and had Brahe bumped off out of some kind of jealousy or, or other anger. Other people said it was Kepler. Other people have subsequently said that Kepler bumped him off. Brahe's remains were actually exhumed, dug up, taken out of his tomb in 2010, and tests were carried out, and no mercury was found. And that might have been expected to still be there and detectable, but it wasn't, so didn't die of mercury poisoning. But there was still speculation that, that somebody else perhaps had a hand in his death. But it boils down to the fact that Johannes Kepler now had full access to Brahe's notebooks. Draw from that what you will. I am not suggesting for one moment that Johannes Kepler killed Tycho Brahe, but the, the sequence of events worked in his favour because he now had access to crucial, voluminous amounts of facts and figures. By that point, or shortly thereafter, he was in post as the Imperial Mathematician. And it was while working as Imperial Mathematician and gifted with Brahe's data that he produced the three laws of planetary motion that bear his name. In addition to proposing these three laws of planetary motion, he proposed that the key to understanding the movement of the planets was to imagine elliptical orbits and irregular speeds. Rather than circles, the planets were coming around the sun on oval orbits and that the planets, the different planets were moving at different speeds. That was the nub of it. That was, that was to explain why, you know, some planets seemed to be catching up with and passing others and all of the rest of it. So it was a simpler system and it not only made sense, it was what we understand to be the case now. So for, for, the, for the first time, you've got somebody who's, who's being scientific, who's using data and observation, and they come up with the idea that the sun is at the centre of the solar system and that everything is moving around it in elliptical orbits and at different speeds, and that we are just we are just one of the horses on the merry-go-round that's going around the centre point of the sun. And without Brahe's work, 
although Brahe's own system had drawn him to an erroneous conclusion, Brahe's raw data reinterpreted by Kepler made Kepler's understanding of the cosmos possible. So you needed the two, and it was born of a bad-tempered union. It was the product of an unhappy marriage, you could say. Afterwards, that groundwork having been laid, Galileo, Galileo Galilei, famously, obviously, followed the same system. He used a telescope. Time moved on. He was making observations using a telescope. And his observations put, you know, put the final nail in the coffin of, of the Ptolemaic system. Galileo, with his telescope, when he looked at Saturn, he saw what he thought were handles, like lugs. And that was, that was his interpretation of what, of course, were the rings around Saturn. He could see that with his telescope. He could also see something small, but nonetheless reflective of light, orbiting Jupiter. So he, he was starting to pick up on the presence of moons around the planets. And when people previously had looked up at what was called the Milky Way, it just seemed to be a... a well, you've seen the Milky Way, I presume. It's just that, that vague ribbon of diffuse light. But through the telescope, Galileo understood for the first time that the Milky Way was actually awash with stars, that it was a diffuse light made of uncountable gazillions of stars. When Brahe died, whatever killed him, his dying words had been, don't let my life have been in vain. And the fact is, because of the way circumstances unfolded, because of his meeting with Johannes Kepler, and because of what Kepler was able to do, and was only able to do because of Brahe's data, Brahe's life was definitely not in vain. Spanish colonisation sweeps into Central and South America bringing brutal religious conversions and state slavery in all but name. But the battle for European control of North America takes a different turn. Saved from death by Pocahontas, a formidable character called John Smith, rising to leadership in Jamestown, attracts other colonists and traditions of individual rights, legal protection and freedoms. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. I'd love to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called the Neil Oliver Channel and we are hovering temptingly around the 200,000 <laughs> subscribers mark on YouTube. So a few more subscribers there could push us through to that magical turning over of the first number at the beginning of that... Get us to 200,000, that would put a smile on my face. Uh, and to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening, and maybe write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. The social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucy and Archie and Teddy. The finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Squared Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.